0: making your way to the 17th chapter of Revelation. Wasn't Brother Ricky a blessing? We'll do as we do each year. Uh, Toward the end of the service, we'll receive an offering. If you have anything to give, every cent will be given to the Gideons. And we'll add some to that, of course. But uh, you do pray for him. Uh, The Lord touched my heart when he shared about losing his son. I believe at the age of 37, wasn't it? Dear brother, and then in the last year, he's also lost a niece and a nephew, and you pray for him and his family um, as you pray. Also, would you remember Miss Gail Bearden? You remember how we prayed that Brother Doug would be able to be here on Tuesday night? God gave them strength, so much strength. They went home, took care of some things. that they had to get to on Wednesday, their church was taking care of some things. And then they turned around and went to Pigeon Forge to celebrate their wedding anniversary. Miss Gale has uh, congestive heart failure, and she wound up in the hospital. And um, they come to learn while she was there, they're trying to, of course, they got her back down to Carrollton, Georgia. And she has a specialist in Atlanta. She's been seeing the last few years. They're going to have to replace a heart valve sometime out there in the future. And so you pray for Miss Gail. And then would you remember us, mentioned in Georgia. Of course, I'll be here Wednesday night, but uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we'll be part of services at in LaGrange, Georgia. So would you please pray for us? Let's stand together. I'm going to read all 18 verses. If you'll remember our last look while we're traveling through the book of Revelation, if you'll remember, I kind of got sidetracked. We got to talking about how that um, closeness is a good thing, how I got off on it that day. But distance is a good thing, and there has to be a balance. Warren Wearsby said the unspoken beatitude is Blessed are the balanced. And you learn that from Scripture. And I don't know how I got off chasing the rabbit that day. Maybe we won't chase any today. But several of you mentioned to me, a couple of you mentioned to me, look, that's where we've been with a child talking about how that closeness, close friends, that's a good thing. But distance is a healthy thing. And so but let's, let's read all 18 verses. I'm going to try to get us through, get up to where we were, and then get us through this chapter so that we'll be ready for chapter 18, our next, next look in the book of Revelation. Revelation 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vows, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. And the beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads, are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings... Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and he is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no power as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords, and the king of kings. And they that are with him are called, and chosen, and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, unto the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. I'll pick up our message where we left off last time. I'm still interested in the fall of religious Babylon. Brother Keith James, would you pray for us please, sir? Amen. Thank you for standing. I'll say, I'm sure, some things that we said our last look in here because, as I mentioned, we got part of the way through the message, but not that far. So I'll try to just review and get us up to where we left off in chapter 17. We trust that we'll preach two messages out of chapter 18, two out of 19. We'll see where we go with chapters 20, 21, and 22. But you remember, we did say that when we come to the end of chapter number 16 of Revelation, you actually come to the end of the tribulation period. You would think that your next move that, uh, that you would read about would be that of Jesus coming back to the earth. But we won't see that until chapter number 19. In chapters 17 and 18, you're going to find the fall of Babylon. That'll be the fall of religious, and uh, you can even make a case for political Babylon in chapter number 17. Then in chapter number 18, you'll find the fall of commercial or economical, uh, economic uh, system, the economical Babylon. And of course, you know what that stands for, don't you? That uh, commercial and economical system will be that one world currency, that one world market. Every nation will be involved in that. This one world religious system. Now all religions are going to come up under one umbrella uh, during the days of the tribulation Period. We've already been told in chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter number 16, verse 19, we've already been told that Babylon's going to fall. And here you see that it's recorded in these two chapters. Chapter 17 and chapter 18 is inserted, as we've seen several chapters thus far, um, is inserted into the chronological flow of things. You remember we started out on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos with John in chapter 1. We saw the church age, chapters 2 and 3. We got caught up in the heaven chapters four and five, chapter six really through chapter number nineteen. You see, or actually through chapter eighteen, you see that uh, uh, of the days of the tribulation, those are going to be days after uh, after the rapture of the church when the church is called out of here. You remember the scene we talked about it on several occasions. Sometimes the scene is in heaven, sometimes the scene is on earth, sometimes it's back in heaven, and then we get a glimpse of what will take place simultaneously. Here upon the earth, uh, we see that over and again. In heaven, the scene is that of elation. On earth, it is scenes of judgment and wrath. You remember, it all hinges on the opening of the seven-sealed book. That seven-sealed book is the title deed to the earth. You remember, the Bible says that that seven-sealed book is written on the, ba- uh, on the inside and on the back side. You remember, we talked about established out of the book of Jeremiah, that written on the inside of that document, sealed seven times it'd be like a chapter in our chapter in our books that we read there's seven divisions to that document, written on the inside would be uh, what it uh, what it was that caused this earth to be forfeited, and that would have gone all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam but on the back side is written uh, those uh, requirements that it would take to purchase back that which has been forfeited. And uh, all the rest of Revelation, when you get out of chapter 5, you start in chapter 6, the opening of the seven sealed book, all of it's about Jesus taking back what rightfully belongs to Him. We've been through the seven sealed book, we have been through the seven trumpet judgments, uh, we have been through the seven vows that are open. And now this brings us to chapters 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon. We've been told that Babylon's going to be judged, and here we see Babylon certainly uh, being judged. Now, in chapter 17, the fall of religious uh, Babylon, of course, the world is going to be very religious during the days of the tribulation. And, uh, and it will be led, of course, the, the great orchestrator behind it all will be Satan, but he'll use the Antichrist. You remember, we've met him time and again. And then his PR man is going to be the false prophet. And the devil's going to use all of that, to uh, use them to uh, gain control of the masses in, uh, that he is upon the face of the earth. Verse number one of this chapter calls religious Babylon the great whore, which is descriptive of the seductive powers that this world system of religion will have. It'll be very uh, alluring Verse 5, this system is called Babylon the Great. That's where we take our title of the fall of religious Babylon from. Do You remember we said that Babylon really speaks of two things. Number one, it speaks of a geographical location. Babylon is actually located in what we know to be modern-day Iraq. But then number two, it is indicative also of a system, a false religious system. Now when you study the Bible, there is what's called the principle of first mention. First time you find Babylon mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis eleven. We won't take the time to go back there, but what you'll find is a man by the name of Nimrod he was heading up a movement and you see he headed up that movement they were going to build two things: they were going to build a city and they were going to build a tower and you remember the tower the Bible says was going to reach up into heaven and uh, and and we talked about the wording that's found in Genesis chapter number nine verses uh, one through, or eleven verses one to nine. And how that that simply meant that the canopy of the tower was going to be heaven. Uh, It is a mystical movement that you see over there. Up until that point in time, everybody spoke the same language. But God came down and confounded the languages of man. And that's where you have the languages and dialects. That's where they come from all across the globe. God confounded and dispersed the people. And you remember that uh, we talked about how that Babylon is symbolic of any mystical religion Anything that worships the stars, they don't worship the God that made the stars, but they worship the stars that were made by God. Astrology and and those types of things and soothsaying is born out of that particular movement and has been around ever since. But nevertheless, we said about those people at Babylon, at the Tower of Babel over there, that uh, they were a sinful people. Number two, they were very selfish people. You remember they kept saying, let us make us. Uh, let us do for us, and it was a very selfish thing. But then it was a, a people that was very distorted in their thought processes. Again, they wanted two things. The city they wanted for their own fleshly purposes, and the tower they wanted so that they could build a church and make out of uh, religion whatever they wanted to make out of it. But then let's move to verse number one, and we talked about, we touched on some of these things. The features pointed out about religious babbling. Verse number one says, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore. And of course, John is speaking here of this one world religion established during the tribulation period. Of course, we believe we see the foreshadowings of that one world religion beginning to slowly come into place even now. As a matter of fact, some of us were talking about around the lunch table out here uh, during the Bible conference, how that you're already seeing some of the foreshadowings of things that no doubt are going to be very pronounced uh, during the days of the tribulation period. Several cities in the Bible are designated as being cities of whoredom. You know that Nineveh was designated as such. Tyre was designated as such. On a couple of occasions, even Jerusalem is called a city of whoredom. And the reason why was because of the idolatry and the pagan practices, uh, that um, uh, the pursuit of religion, false religion that is, this world is a religious place. Everybody worships something. Everybody is given unto something. And in these days, of course, it will be this religious movement, this worldwide movement. Now, there's the power and influence of religious Babylon. Verse number one, the end of the verse says, The great whore that sitteth upon many waters. This word sitteth is a word that speaks of authority. Christ is seated. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father, which is a position of authority. Well, this particular church, this worldwide church, is going to sit upon many waters. The many waters, we've already noted in the book of Revelation, now that speaks of the masses, the peoples, if you will, all around the globe. There's the people in alliances of religious Babylon. First of all, the earthly people in alliances. Verse 2 says, "...with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication." And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The kings of the earth, the world players on the world stage, the world leaders, that's who that's talking about. The Bible says that they shall commit fornication with a great whore. In other words, uh, that speaks of of the interaction between the world leaders, uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the other world leaders that will look to them, their interaction with this religious movement uh, in the latter times. Verse number 3, there's the beastly alliance with religious uh, Babylon. Verse 3 says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. There uh, there in verse number 3, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. This scarlet-colored beast is the Antichrist. This woman is religious Babylon. It is the great whore it is this one world religion. And here you see the Antichrist upholding or supporting this one world religion. Let me show you how let me show you how brazen the Antichrist is. In verse number three, the Bible says that he is full of names of blasphemy. We've already said about him what others have said about him. He's Satan's Messiah. He's Satan's superman. He's Satan's Savior. He'll be the man with the answers that'll step on the scene. We believe is alive right now on planet Earth. Just waiting for everything to, uh, to take place next. Of course, the next place, next thing to take place on God's prophetic calendars, He is calling His church, His bride, out of this walk of life. And he steps on the scene. He'll have all the answers for world peace, He'll have all the political answers, He'll have all the economical answers, and He'll step right on the scene. Eventually, of course, He'll be full of these names of blasphemy. I think, as we said it last time, uh, you know, He'll call Himself something like this. He'll say, I'm wonderful. I'm counselor. Uh, I'm the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I'm the mighty God. And people will look to him. They'll follow the strong delusion. They'll take the mark of the beast. And those are messages that we've looked at before. The Bible says, having seven heads and ten horns in verse number three. And that, of course, re- refers to an alliance that we're going to mention here in just a few moments. But this religious movement is going to be endorsed by the Antichrist. It will be led by the false prophet and the masses of people that will receive the mark of the beast. Beloved, will fall up under this religious movement that, again, will be a worldwide movement. You'll notice with me in verse number 4, the, uh, the, the religious babbling, her look, her presentation, the way she'll present herself to the world. Verse number 4 says, And the woman was arrayed in, pur- in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Of course, this religious movement is portrayed here as a prostitute. And a prostitute will dress herself in a way that will be very alluring. She'll be very revealing in herself. So it will be with this religious movement. The Bible says that she's decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. This will be very impressive. Then... I think I touched on this the last time we looked. I don't know exactly where I got off on chasing the rabbit, but it was right here somewhere close. So don't let any rabbits get up and hit the aisle. Amen. We'll try to finish the chapter today. In verse number 4, the perversion of religious babbling is mentioned, where the Bible says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Verse number four says she has a golden cup in her hand. And, of course, the world leader is going to drink out of that cup. And others are going to drink out of that cup as well. This cup, the Bible says here in verse number four, is full of abominations. Or, in other words, idolatries. This cup, according to verse number four, is filled with the filthiness of her fornication. If you look up that word where fornication comes from, it speaks of all kind of perverseness. It can speak of anything from pornography to sodomy. To fornication to adultery, anything that is filled with filth uh, and uh, that sort of thing of the flesh beloved that's what it's ta- that's what it's talking about and of course uh, you just uh, you turn your television on and you can get an idea of where we're headed already we've already been so desensitized uh, in these areas uh, in America uh, so this cup is filled with the filthiness of her fornication the filthiness of her immorality. Uh, the filthiness of her perversions, that's the idea. May I remind you, I've said something about this one world religion. That's all it is. It's a religion. Religion is man's attempt to, uh, of course, he'll have his own God and he'll have his own system and philosophies of, of belief. But Religion is man's attempt to get to God. Uh, Christianity is where God has through the cross of Calvary brought, brought men and women, boys and girls, unto himself, just like Mitch Holloway this week. Uh, just like Michelle uh, Mull two weeks ago. Just like Colby Pruitt and, and, uh, and Kaylee that was saved last Sunday morning. Uh, we come by way of the cross. It blessed me Wednesday night over here. Just Mitch and I, Jane out there in the fort, just blessed me. When I asked Mitch, I said, do you believe that Jesus is, we'd already talked about a few other things. But I asked him, I said, do you believe Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is? He said, yes, sir, I do. And, of course, we took him even a little bit farther. He doesn't believe that God can lie. He believes that the New Testament's that this uh, dear brother has held up is the word of God. It's inerrant. He believes that. He believes he can stake his, uh, his soul. And he did that Wednesday night on what God has said in his word. You see, beloved, religion is man's attempt to get to God, but salvation is God reaching down through the cross, uh, through Jesus Christ, and, and the uh, the sin debt that was paid there. There's a great difference, is there not? Do you know? There's a lot of people under the uh, really under the the light of the lights that come on in the parking lot at night. Uh, probably right here, just a small radius. There's probably a number of people that thinks that well, I, I'm a pretty good old boy, and I'm going to heaven. uh, Or I do the best I can. I'm going to go to heaven. I got baptized in a church back some... Why I I pay my debts and pay my bills on time. So therefore, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I don't tell you every bit of that. uh, Every bit of that will let you die and go to hell. The only way you can go to God's heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said, I am the way, that's the definite article he used before way, Right? He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He didn't use an indefinite article. He didn't say, I'm a way among many ways. But he said, I'm it, y'all. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Notice the persecution of religious babbling. Notice this with me in verse number 6. Now, we've talked about this in messages gone by. You do know there'll be those, I believe some of the greatest saints that will ever live, are going to be those tribulation saints that refuse to take the mark of the beast. The number of men, 600, three score and six. We call it three sixes or 666. They'll refuse to take the mark of the beast, and many of them will become martyrs, beloved, because of their faith. I believe there's some of the greatest saints that will ever live on the planet Earth. Do you know who they're going to be persecuted by? They're going to be persecuted by the Antichrist, by the false prophet, and by a religious babbling, the great whore that we're reading about today. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. And, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great uh, admiration. This one-world system will hate true believers. And, and let's be honest, that is shaping up now, isn't it? Even in our country, in the borders of our country. Let me tell you who doesn't have many rights in our country. Uh, it is a born-again conservative Christian. We don't have many rights in America anymore. You can, be, uh, you can be a Muslim lady and wear the hijab, and somebody make fun of you, and you can file lawsuit. You can do whatever you want to do. You can can hold a press conference. And I'm telling you, they'll push everybody back. They'll make fun. But they make fun of us. They call us Bible thumpers. They think we're sticks in the mud. Some religious uh, old uh, um, uh, old belief system of some sort. Uh, But now, beloved, listen. Did you know that the Catholic Church has put many believers to death over the years uh, because of what we believe? Do you know the Muslims are doing that uh, even today? I told you about two years ago about my preacher friend that they've got to believe it's 22, maybe it's 26, somewhere along there, empty chairs in their sanctuary. That was after there were a number of Christians that were beheaded by some of the Muslims. He got up so impressed that morning, 20-some-odd chairs. They put in their sanctuary just to let people know there's 26 men that will never go home to their wives, never go home to their children. Their children won't see them until over on the other side. And did you know a lot of that takes place even in our day? Do you know the majority of Christian martyrs, as far as percentage-wise, has been martyred in the last 200 years around the globe? Beloved, this thing's going on. We live in a very safe culture here in America. And I know it's changing. But we do live in a very safe culture here in the United States of America. But there are many that have put Christians to death. Religion is a bloodthirsty system. As a matter of fact, we saw it begin to take shape with the two boys. First two boys as ever born in this world. No doubt Adam and Eve took their boys. Uh, Cain and Abel took them to a designated place at a designated time. Adam and Eve had talked to those boys about what it would take to please God. How that in the Garden of Eden they failed God, plunged the world into sin. How that God took an innocent animal and blood was shed. Uh, Took the hide of those animals and clothed their nakedness. Isn't it interesting? They walked around, didn't have a bit of clothing on, didn't know that they were naked necessarily and had no shame about them until they sinned. And then they tried to cover all that up. That's what religion will try to make you do, try to make you play games and cover it all up, Uh, try uh, uh, try to convince you to make claims that you cannot make in the presence of God. Do you remember Cain was so refined? Uh, Why, uh, Abel, he brought a blood sacrifice, right? But Cain didn't do that. He did the best he could. He brought the very best that his hands had produced. As he would yield the crop from the ground. I don't believe he brought anything that was slouchy or trashy. I don't believe that. I believe he brought the best that his hands could offer. But God refused that offering, didn't he? And he received the offering of Abel. Do you remember that Cain was so refined, like religion is today. He was so refined he couldn't offer a blood sacrifice. But he had so much hatred and bitterness and was so selfish that it didn't bother him to slit the throat and shed his own brother's blood. Beloved, I'm telling you, religion is a bloodthirsty system, and that is seen all around the world. And so the persecution of religious Babylon. Notice with me the second heading. And I'll try not to uh, keep you very long, but look at verse number 5. Notice this unfolding of religious Babylon. Verse number 5 says, And upon her forehead was a name written uh, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations uh, of the earth. As we touched on our last message, and even briefly touched on here, a prostitute will identify herself. You know, someone that is even in some of these inner cities. You've seen documentaries. I mean, they're very revealing, and they want you to know who they are. They're trying to allure people on the streets or wherever it is. Now, here, this this religious movement will identify itself, and Uh, During the tribulation period, when John writes here of mystery Babylon, he's talking about that mystical thing that I spoke of earlier. He's talking about mystery. When he says mystery Babylon, that's religious Babylon again. He's speaking of Babylon is seen here to be the mother of harlots and abominations. Babylon is seen as a system, a religious system here in this chapter. It's a system that will be the source of all uh, blasphemous worship in the end times Notice John's reaction when he sees this, when the angel shows him this. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. John is amazed at what he saw. He sees what Adrian Rogers preached on when he was in this chapter. Adrian Rogers uh, cha- uh, titled this chapter Beauty and the Beast. N- the Beauty is the Church. Uh, it'll be flamboyant in its presentation to the world. Again, very alluring. But then this beast is mentioned. The beast is none other than the Antichrist. And both of them are paired together. How do you? As a matter of fact, you ought to go listen to it if you can hear it. Adrian Rogers was a master at, at sermon. Uh, preparation and sermon delivery. He was a master. Uh, There's a couple of books been put out since he's gone home to be with the Lord called Adrianisms. A lot of our church, uh, uh, a lot of church signs, I hear preachers talk about on the church signs, these little sayings that are put a lot of times now, they're taking them from those books. Adrianisms. He just had a way of saying things, right? And uh, I think somebody even said something about that in recent days. He talked about when one of his granddaughters was married uh, she wanted to be carried in his tea bucket uh, over to where they were holding the reception and said he escorted her, or no, it's a Studebaker, said he escorted her and her new husband over to the place of reception. And of course, they had the, they had the tin cans dragging on the back and they had the, the shaving cream that said just married and all that stuff and said when it got time for him to leave, he sent another one of his granddaughters. Uh, Said he said to her, said, Won't you ride back to the house with me? I'll take you back to get your car. He said they got on I 40, headed back toward the church to uh, to get her car, and said 18 wheelers would come by, hawking their horn. And said, Here was this old geezer, looked like a beast, right beside this young, beautiful girl in her 20s. Said there was beauty in the beast. And did you know it's going to be somewhat similar this connection, this beast, this Antichrist set out to devour? Uh, He's going to be leading. He's going to be at the helm of this thing. Look, if you will, at the emergence of the beast. How does this happen? Verse number 8. The Bible says, The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Now notice with me here in verse number 8 about the beast. There's two phrases here. The first one says, was and is not. And the second one says, was and is not and yet is. You say, Preacher, what are they talking about there? What's the Bible saying? That's what we read about in Revelation 13, verse number 4, and then on over, or excuse me, verse 3 and verse 14 of chapter 13. I, I do not believe, and some of you may, and we won't argue about it, uh, but uh, I do not believe that the, the death wound that... Uh, That the Antichrist will bear when it looks as though he dies in the tribulation period. Personally, I believe that's a fake death. I personally believe that only God can give life, and I believe it's a fake death. Can you imagine? Was it a month ago now that we all went home and we saw on Fox News? We started getting emails. Those of us that get news get emails from news outlets uh, every day. Do you remember we got to get word about Colby Bryant and there were nine of them went down in the. Uh, In uh, in the helicopter was it lost uh, uh, Casabas whatever it was I'll get back trying to say these words I can't say but you remember how that uh, they they lost their lives that day we got to get reports Aaron and Anna and Lucy walked across the road about two thirty that afternoon and Aaron said to me said did you see the news Kobe Bryant uh, the superstar and he was that he was an athletic uh, well he's a phenom I mean man he was. He could do anything on the basketball court. As a matter of fact, it's been debated in recent years. Was he the best? Was it Larry Bird? Was it Michael Jordan? Of course, I know who it was. Is MJ. Can I get a witness right there? But 41 years of age, and, and he said, you know, said, it's just shocking, isn't it? And I said, here's what's so shocking. You see a man in the prime of his life. He's just finished one career, and he's, he's embarking on being one of the greatest businessmen, investors out of that particular area of, uh, of our country. And he's cut off his days. Is a verse in the Old Testament talks about a man's days being cut off early. And I said, here they are, cut off early. And I said, what makes it so shocking is you think he's larger than life. And people think he's larger than life. But he's no better than the rest of us. Beloved, every man is going to go in death. If we do not go in the rapture, death is going to come and claim us. Do you know I preached a funeral on Friday up in Boonville, Mississippi? I never met the lady. I've had funerals like this just a handful of times over the years where I've been called by somebody that remembered I pastored in a certain area. And the request was this We want it short and sweet. We don't want it, We don't want much preaching. We just want you to look. You say, What'd you do? I kept it short and sweet, but I didn't make it about anybody except Jesus Christ. It was my opportunity to preach to that handful of people. They were going to do it at the graveside. They just changed their mind. Didn't want to go to the graveside. Said, Let's just do it right here. And then when they take her to the cemetery, they can lay her down in the, in the grave and put the dirt over, and that's it. And uh, I thought, here's my opportunity, and I preached the gospel to them. And if they don't hear it any other time. They heard it on Friday. I preached how that Christ died for their sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And let me ask you something. If Colby Bryant, did you know there are pictures now they are trying to, keep, uh, trying to keep hushed? You probably saw that report yesterday. Where some of the first responders took video on the telephone. And some of those are beginning to circulate. They saw the body, pieces of the body, whatever it was, of Colby Bryant. Some of those others that were aboard the helicopter. They're trying to squash that and keep it. I wouldn't want it to out on my loved one either. But what if you saw him and a mangled body? Then all of a sudden, two or three days later, he stood back up to life. Did you know that's what it's going to appear like uh, with the Antichrist? I mean, that's pretty convincing, isn't it? Here's a man in a service. He lies out. And some of our nurses that are in the service say, look, there's no hope. Uh, He's gone. The heart has burst, whatever it is. Or or somebody is, uh, whatever it would be. And then you're just convinced of that. You leave for a span of time, come back, and all of a sudden that body stands up. That'll be convincing. And so it will be to the world. That's what it's talking about. This beast that was and is not. And then he goes on in verse 8. He was and is not. And yet is. He'll convince the world by this that this death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, I believe it'll be faked. And if you don't believe that, maybe we'll get to heaven, set down by the sea of Galilee, or sat down by the crystal sea. and Maybe we'll be sitting together, if you disagree with me, and Gabriel will walk up and say, you know, that preacher had that thing right about the Antichrist, you know. The emergence of the beast, the exercise of control by the beast, three verses. Look at verses 9 through 11. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. In other words, he said, John, draw near. i Let me tell you what's going on here, John. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. We believe at this point that this is halfway through the tribulation. And the short space referred to here, we believe, is the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation. He says, "In the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and he is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the beast. In other words, these ten kings are going to be raised up during those hours, but they're um, their rule will be short-lived because the end of the tribulation is soon to come. I want to say something right here, and I'm moving to the last point, and I'll be real brief with it. In case as anybody wonders, uh, you know, for years, preachers wrote and preached for years that the great whore that we're talking about, religious Babylon, is the Catholic Church. And you even see the reviving of the Roman Empire here, the city set upon seven hills. Now, I do believe the Roman Empire will be revived. I do believe that. But I do not believe the Catholic Church to be the great whore or religious Babylon. I believe the Catholic Church is but one daughter, perhaps even the firstborn daughter of religious Babylon. You look at what's going on in this world. I mentioned the Muslims, the Hindus have been mentioned. Everybody's coming together. Each of these movements will be one daughter under. Um, the lead of religious babbling. That's what I believe about that. Now, there's a lot of debate going on about it. But I don't understand how that's going to be brought, about, brought to pass other than that strong delusion that's going to be given, written about in Second Thessalonians 2. Let me give you my final point. You've been most gracious this morning and very patient. Let me say something lastly, thirdly and lastly, about the fall of religious babbling. Um, You know that anything and everything that is anti-God is destined to fall, don't you? Everything that is anti-Christ, it's going to fall. Everything that is anti-Scripture, it's going to fall. I want you to mark something. I've been debating over whether or not to read these verses. Go with me to Acts chapter 5. You remember early on in the days of the early church, God was using the disciples in a very powerful way. You remember they were being persecuted for their stand and their preaching of Christ that he rose from the grave and he ever liveth to receive those that were coming to him. And you remember in the midst of the persecution, as a matter of fact, you just come out of chapter 4, Peter and John's been beaten. They've been before the Sanhedrin. When you come to chapter 5, you're introduced to an interesting man that Saul of Tarsus sat at his feet and learned. He was a scholarly man, Gamaliel. Look at Acts 5. Watch this and always remember this. I may get excited about movements that come through. We Baptists are the worst to jump on the bandwagon of every little thing that runs through town. But I'm gonna tell you, if it's not of God, it'll play out in time. It'll play out in time. Good friend of mine that was on Brother Fred Morris's Wall of Grace Ministry DVD, Dr. David Miller, I talked to him about a particular matter some a uh, couple of three years back, and he said, Preacher, hit our area of Heber Springs, Arkansas, about ten years ago. He said, I was never, never so glad to see a movement leave our area. Said they manipulated people into making different professions and, of faith. And, and when they left, uh, churches had poured their monies into it, just ravaged our churches in the area. He confronted it. He confronted it. Of course, he's got enough power and influence to do that. He did it. But he said, Preach it a pass. And I find that that happens, Brother Ricky. Brother I don't know why we're so dissatisfied with the norm. It seems like we are. Let me tell you what's a good fix for that: be grounded, be grounded in the Word. And I asked you this two or three or four weeks ago. What if? That, here's how we'd see whether or not we're real or not. We've got some. I thought about this during the conference. I, I'd forgotten we're in our remodeled building. I'm used to coming in here now. Several several of our visitors complimented our pews and our building and the foyer and the bathrooms and how well it looks around here. But what if for some reason we were forbidden to meet here? Could you meet in a barn? Could we cut the song service back? If we didn't have a baby grand, but we had uh, just maybe a cappella singing around here. What is it and who is it that you're in love with? You ought to be in love with Christ. You ought to be in love with Christ. Watch what Gamaliel said, and I've got to hurry. Look, if you will. Verse 34 of Acts 5 and following, the Bible says, that right in the midst of all that persecution that believers were going through. Acts 5, verse 34. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And said unto them, he said, give them room, fellows. Give them some space. Verse 35. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What you intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. He said, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Watch what he says, And now I say unto you, Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest haply you be found even to fight against God. Now sometimes when it's just blatant heresy, you know that you can just, I mean, man, you balk against it. But sometimes you wonder what's taking place. If you'll give it some time. If you'll give it some space, if it ain't of the Lord, or even is, if it is of the Lord, when it runs its course, it'll run its course, and you don't have to fall out and fight about it. Am I making any sense right there? Notice with me, if you will. It's, it's, it's surprising to me how God's going to judge religious Babylon. You know what he's going to do? He's going to let them turn in on themselves. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the world leaders, they're going to use the religious movement during the days of the tribulation. And when they're finished using religious babbling, the great whore, beloved, they're going to turn their back on her and they're going to discard her. And that's going to be that. That's the way the devil is. He'll make a lot of promises. Make you feel mighty important. He'll do what he can. He'll disrupt If you'll just buy into his game. But now, friend, when he's finished with you and ready to move on elsewhere, he'll discard you like you're a piece of paper wadded up, and he'll throw you in the garbage can. Let's read the verses, and I'm done. Verses 14 through 16. Watch how he does this. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. They that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. He saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. That's these ten kings. Shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked. Shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Verse 17 says, it unawares to them. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Verse 18, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. I've rushed through this chapter today. I couldn't help but think about when Brother Ricky was up here before us, his pastor's brother Mickey Trammell, a great servant of the Lord, there in Corinth. And I couldn't help but think about, knowing what I'm, uh, the chapter we would go through today, I couldn't help but think about how uh, the devil has done over and again what he's going to do with multitudes and masses of people during the tribulation. I couldn't help but think about my friend that just resigned over at Wheeler Grove, 78 years old and still at it, still as passionate as he's ever been. I remember him telling, I've heard him tell it uh, a number of times really over the years. Used to go hear him in revival a lot of years ago. Uh, Things are so busy, you know, you rarely get a chance to go hear him anymore. And he preaches off so much too. But I remember him telling about there being a young lady in the church. She grew up with the delight of her mom and her dad. Her church was proud of her. Her Sunday school teachers had had her testified as to what a delight she was. And all of a sudden, she reached about college age, and a little old boy took an interest in her. Nobody ever wanted to come courting. Nobody wanted to come calling. Uh, the girl got caught up in the boy, got um, just taken, taken away with him. Uh, she moved out of her mom and dad's house. The dad and mom met with Brother Kara and said, look, said, don't know if you've heard, but she's down here in a mobile home with that old boy. And. Well, she's raised better. You know she's raised better. Never gave him any indication that she would go this route. And ask if maybe he'd take a deacon and go visit. And they did. They visited on two or three different occasions. And he would ask the girl, he would ask the girl, Are you saved? before he'd leave. Last time he was there to visit, the girl told him not to come back. Um, And he didn't. As a matter of fact, last time he saw her, some months had elapsed from his last visit. The mom called him one day and said, Brother Cara said, We're in the hospital up here in Memphis. Said, I know you're aware of that. She's asked you not to come, but I want you to come just to see what the devil's done to my baby. He said the girl was in her twenties and said when he stepped in, said there was a ghastly odor. It was cancer. There were two tumors. He said you couldn't have placed them on her forehead any more perfectly, said it looked like something had come out, from out of the barn and said sin had so left its mark on her countenance," and said even at that, she didn't want to talk, didn't want to talk. This is what the mom said to him as she stepped back in the hall. She said, Brother Kara, thank you for coming. She said, I wanted you to see, you being a preacher of the gospel, I wanted you to see what sin has done to my baby girl. He said that family, when they buried that girl some weeks later, said that family said they were so hurt over what the devil, I'm going to tell you something, listen to me. The devil is no account. He's up to no good. He is seeking to do harm to all he can. He'll take good boys and he'll take good girls. He'll take a good mom and he'll take a good daddy. He'll take a good marriage. He'll take a good home. He'll take a... What looks to be a promising career, Uh, he'll take what looks to be a promising life, and he'll destroy it. When he's finished with you, he'll destroy it. And I'm telling you, everybody around will grieve except the one that buys into it. I don't understand that to you. Sometimes I want to throw a flag up in front of a young person and just say, hey, stop. Wait just a minute. Where do you really think you're going to wind up with this? Do you think you'll be the exception to the rule? Or maybe a grown-up. Sometimes, sometimes you don't have to a middle-aged man or a middle-aged lady. Sometimes I've seen it as somebody's near, nearing the finish line. And all of a sudden turn their back on everything they've stood for. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. The devil will hoodwink you today, dear heart. do not you let him do that? Isn't it amazing? The devil, you can say what you want to, but temptation is very real. And sometimes the enticement of the devil is very powerful. You put some safeguards up in your life. You keep some accountability in your life. You're looking at a preacher. I've, I've got a handful of preachers that can say anything at any hour of the day to me. If they detect something in my attitude, if I'm letting something into my life and they detect that, they have full liberty full liberty to pick the phone up or knock on my door or say, you come meet me at the restaurant. We've got a matter to discuss. I'd rather have it that way. Accountability is a good thing. I will tell you something, church. Accountability is a good thing. Accountability, a husband to his wife is a good thing. Accountability, a wife to her husband is a good thing. You young folk, accountability to your mom and dad If you're still living under their roof, that's a good thing. You owe them. You owe them your respect. You be accountable to somebody that's trustworthy. We as a church, accountability is a good thing. I promise you I'm trying to close. I just come through those two giving chapters. You can ask Brother Chris. He was sitting there. You can ask Brother Dustin. He was sitting there in class the other night, two classes ago. I was doing those two great giving chapters out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. A church ought to be accountable. What comes through our What comes through these offering plates and where it goes? You ought to be able to know about that. You are the body of Christ. I've got Bible on that. You ought to be accountable. I'm going to tell you something. This preacher ought to be accountable. You ought to be accountable. Accountability is an honorable thing. If I have nothing to hide, it won't bother me to be accountable to you or anybody else. The devil, he'd love to make an inroad to my life. You know, I hate to illustrate it like this. I'm looking at two sisters sitting right over here by each other. I believe both of them would be good girls. You know what the devil would love to do? He'd love to divide the two of them. Let them spend the rest of their life in hatred and bitterness toward each other. And usually over nothing. That's the way the devil operates. God help us to be stronger than that. I'm glad I'm on the winning side today. Miss Angie, you come. Brother Greg, would you come get us a hymn of invitation?